go. It's Bible Wednesday Law and Gospel. I'm Tom Baker on this January the 11th in the year of our Lord, 2023. Wow, we're almost halfway through January. And pretty soon it'll be Christmas again, the end of the year. Well, today, though, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. It's advice to a wise son. Solomon, of course, is the primary author or writer of the book of Proverbs because God is the author. But this section is advice to a wise son. And the purpose of why we are looking at this is not only to help you understand the original language of Hebrew, but more importantly, to understand the English. So let's look at verse one. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of pain with strife. Now, I'm sure you can probably understand what that's talking about. Better is having a meal where there's good companionship, there's no arguing or anything. That is far better than a house full of lots of food, but there's a lot of quarreling going on. In fact, you know, at Thanksgiving, they often say when you have people coming up, the two things not to discuss are politics and religion. Well, we like talking religion, but let's take a closer look at the English here because the Hebrew has important understanding. Better is a dry morsel with quiet. Now, a dry morsel is what? That is really better translated as kind of stale food. So let's say you're having toast, but boy, the toast is old and it, well, tastes a little stale. Better is having that with quiet at the dinner table than to have a house full of feasting with strife. Now, the word feasting is very important in the original Hebrew because it's a Hebrew word that talks about sacrificial feasts that occur. And this is a specific feast. For example, sometimes a person would bring a lamb to be slaughtered, and that lamb would remain with the priests for their food, etc. But there was one offering that people would bring that they could take home with them some of the meat from the offering, and that's called the peace offering. It's found in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 to 21. So here's what Solomon is writing. Better to have a dinner with ill food where there is no quarreling going on 
than having a house full of meat from the peace offering, but connected to a lot of quarreling at the table. Now, that's really ironic that they bring home meat from the peace offering and then they begin not to have peace. They are quarreling over some item or other. You see this in a lot of movies where young people kind of get fed up with the rules from their parents and they leave the dinner table. They say, I'm not hungry anymore. And they leave and they go and do their own thing. Now the dinner table could have wonderful food, maybe a turkey or a chicken or ham or whatever, but that isn't as good as having a meal with stale food, but there is no quarreling going on. That's what God thinks of. That therefore, when we go and get a peace offering from Leviticus 7, and take home some of the meat, and then begin to quarrel, that is absolutely contrary to the point of the peace offering that we have had with God. But there's no peace in the household. So that's a pretty good first verse, but needs to be understood from a original language point of view. Verse two, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Now, the word for servant there also can be translated as a slave. So slaves were bought by individual, but a lot of times they were treated very well. Uh, the slave might cook the meals, uh, clean the residence, maybe even do farming at the behest of the master. And a lot of times, the slave and the master were good friends. Well, Solomon is saying, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that a slave who deals wisely, well, there we got that word again, wisely, wisdom. And as you go through the book of Proverbs, anytime the word wisdom or wise is used, it's always referring to Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, you hear what are the wise ways to act. So a servant who wisely rules over a son who is acting shamefully is considered to be someone who will even share the inheritance as though he's one of the brothers. In fact, you've got that statement from Jesus. A man has two sons and he asks them to do something. The one son says, sure, I'll do it. The other son says, no, I won't. But the one son who says, I will do it, he doesn't do it. And the son who at first was negative, he then does the task that the father has. And Jesus makes the point 
that the one who acts according to the will of the Father, he will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. So this really is contrary to the thinking of people in the day of Solomon and Jesus. A, a slave, even if he rules wisely, will normally not be ruling over a son, even if the son acts shamefully. And he certainly would not share the inheritance as one of the brothers. But when we come to Christianity, there's no distinction that's mentioned in Galatians between male and female, free or slave, Jew or Gentile. Even a slave will receive the inheritance of heaven as his home, as he rules wisely at the behest of the master. So once again, we have God's wisdom coming to bear on the world that doesn't really understand that because people really are put into place on the basis of their privilege or on the basis of their position. For example, if you are listening to someone who's elected to office, whether it's the House, the Senate, or even the president, you get the opinion that you ought to listen because he has such a high office of privilege. But no, instead listen to what these people are saying and see if they're relying on the wisdom of Jesus or their own wisdom. That's really what's going on here in verse 2. Verse 3, the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold. Now, what does that mean? Well, the crucible and the furnace were items that were used, the crucible to shape in silver, and the furnace or the other word for that is the smelter, S-M-E-L-T-E-R, to refine the gold. There's no doubt that pure silver and pure gold is more important than just what you find when you go looking for it. And therefore, God is like a crucible and like a furnace when the next part of the verse says, and the Lord tests hearts. Now the word Lord there in the English, every letter is capitalized, which means this is the name of God in the original Hebrew, Yahweh. And testing hearts means he examines the hearts. Remember, this has been found a number of times in the book of Proverbs, that God does not consider you doing a good work because of the outcome of what you're doing, but because of the motivation. Uh, for example, there can be a rich person 
who gives money to a hospital. But he's doing that in order to save money on his income tax. In other words, his motivation isn't really love for the people in the hospital, but in order to get something out of it. And this is important to remember, that God is like a crucible and a furnace in making us pure in his eyes by examining our hearts and giving us the Holy Spirit, which we receive in holy baptism, as well as the forgiveness of sins. And in that way, there are definite works that you do that are referred to as works of the Spirit because they're motivated by your love for God and specifically for what Jesus Christ has done for you. And therefore, a lot of times you may not recognize or be aware of your motivation, but God can read your heart better than you can. In other words, you can end doing a lot of wonderful things without thinking of your motivation. Many people get up on a Sunday morning. They may even get up early enough to have breakfast and go to church. And they're not really thinking much about their motivation there. But their motivation, from God's point of view, is to love to hear the word of God and be helped and comforted by what is found in the worship service, not only in the sermon, but in the hymns, in the liturgy, and also in the prayers. So that's how God examines our hearts, by giving us the Holy Spirit and the ability to love him even more. That's really talking not about justification, where we are declared righteous in the sight of God, but this is sanctification, where we then begin to do proper motivation on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we're in Proverbs 17. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ears to a mischievous tongue. Now, this is a good example of an expansion of the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Evildoers love to listen to wicked lips. We pay attention when somebody is telling us, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? And then they talk about, well, a divorce or an accident or something like that. Martin Luther made the comment that Human beings like to hear bad things about others. Why? Because it makes us feel good about our lives that may not have that evil. And it is wicked lips that want to share this information. 
You see, you break the Eighth Commandment not only when you tell a lie about someone, like, for example, a boyfriend of a girl doesn't like the idea of another boy liking his girlfriend. So he begins to tell lies about him. And in fact, he may even do a wicked thing against that other boy to make sure that he doesn't hang around his girlfriend. That's an evildoer. Now, in that case, he's telling lies. But you can also tell the truth about someone and still be breaking the Eighth Commandment. Uh, For example, let's say a pastor has his last sermon in a congregation. Maybe he's taken a call to another congregation, and so he's preaching his last time. And what he does, he goes through the names of the members of the congregation and informs the whole congregation of the evil things that he has heard them speak to him about in privacy. Now, he may not be telling a lie, but he is telling the wrong people what these members did not want anyone else to know. They come to the pastor in confidence, and they may speak about a sin they have done, and they look forward to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but not to the pastor in going through a sermon indicating, well, here's the sin of so-and-so, and here's what this person told me in order to show what an evil congregation these people are. These people already know that they are evil because they confess their sins each week as poor, miserable sinners, saying they deserve nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. So they already confess that. For a pastor to indicate what specific sins each person did would definitely be a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Now, sometimes a pastor does have to break that confidence. For example, where the state of Missouri is, they have a law that if a pastor hears about a member who is fooling around with a little child, he is to alert the officials of that state. And that means he has to tell them of what the pedophile is doing. That's when he would break that confidence. And that's really important. So normally, 99% of what a pastor hears, he never tells anybody, including his own wife. Because a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. That means a liar feeds upon destructive things that are happening to other people. And evildoers pay attention to wicked lips because when they hear something bad about someone, then they want to share it with others. 
and that breaks the eighth commandment, which is contrary to God's will. Verse five, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. This is kind of a conclusion to verse four. Whoever is glad at calamity, it can be interpreted, whoever rejoices at someone's misfortune will not escape being punished. This is a theme found throughout the book of Proverbs. And it is one reason why it's very important to share with your children the will of God. Because when they go contrary to the will of God, God promises some kind of negative consequence. Now, sometimes it may not be clearly attached to what they have done wrong, but something negative does happen in their life. And that occurs when you mock the poor. What does mocking the poor mean? That you make fun of people who may not have all of the possessions you have and you mock them. What you're really doing is insulting your maker because he is also the maker of those who may not have all the privileges that you have. By the way, the word whoever mocks, this is the only time in Proverbs that that word is used, namely to mock someone to make fun of them. And as it says so clearly from the text, when you do that, you are insulting the maker because it is God the maker who has put that person in what you would consider to be an underprivileged life. And you would say, oh, he doesn't have the things I have because maybe he's lazy or he's not honest, or, and you'll give all kinds of reasons why you're mocking the poor. That's something to keep in mind, that a lot of people legally come to the United States of America, and it is important that the church greets them, invites them to a Christian service, does not mock them, because mocking them would insult God himself. And being glad at their misfortune, it will not go unpunished. Now that unpunishment, that can occur at the end of life when you do not go to heaven. But that is a promise that God makes. This is important to understand in Proverbs that the advice to a wise son often includes promises like God examining the heart or God making sure that one who insults the poor will not go unpunished. The five verse six, grandchildren 
are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now, that needs to be explained, of course, from the original Hebrew. There's no doubt that grandchildren are the crown. And what's a crown? Well, when you go to the Olympics and you win first place, you may get gold. And God says that you will be placed on your head the crown of Jesus Christ. A crown of the aged, which means elderly people, grandchildren are their crown, something with which they are very proud of. In fact, I know of a number of individuals who are elderly people in the congregations I serve who not only have grandchildren, but one of them has six great-grandchildren, which means his son or daughter got married and their children got married and then had other children. And, And that's a joy. When somebody told me that they had those many grandchildren, I said to them, boy, Christmas must be pretty expensive for you because you're giving gifts not only to your children, your grandchildren, but your great-grandchildren. And they laughed and said it doesn't bother them at all. And then not only are grandchildren the crown of the elderly, but the second part, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now, when you take a look at fathers, that also can be understood as parents. So it's not only fathers, but also mothers who are the glory of their children. That means children have pride in their mother or their father for taking care of them and comforting them. That's Proverbs 17, 1 to 6. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel, we'll continue with another analysis of what's happening in the world from a law and gospel point of view. Until then, I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check out to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.